Your teen gets easily overwhelmed or freezes when faced with a decision or problem. This episode is for you. Today, we're joined by Dr. Juliana Negreros and Dr. Catherine Martinez, psychologists and co-authors of the books, Your Anxious Mind, A Teen's Guide to Anxiety and Panic, and Getting Uncomfortable with Uncertainty for Teens. We're going to discuss how we can help our teens learn to manage their anxiety and stress through coping, problem solving, and focusing on where they want to go. Welcome, Juliana and Catherine. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. We are it's excited our pleasure. To this morning. Yeah. So let's just start with the backstory. How did you guys decide to join forces and write books to help teens with their anxiety and overwhelm and all those big emotions? That's an excellent question. And I have to say that um, we were approached by the book publisher to publish this book. And um, it was pre-pandemic and the hot topic was uncertainty. And Catherine and I um, have been working with teenagers for a long time, and we truly enjoy um, giving them tips. And we thought that it would be really important to create a self-book with our best um, strategies so that they could have a guide on how to do that by their, themselves. So uh, once we started writing the proposal for the book, that was March 2020. And that's when the pandemic hit. So that was a little bit of like a, a really need for this book to come out because everything was very uncertain at that time to the point that we didn't even know if we would be returning to schools ever. And so it was very interesting trying to think about the future when the future was so, was so uncertain. So the book came at a good time uh, and we are pretty pleased with some of the tips that we were able to articulate to teens and also to parents and educators and therapists. Yeah. Catherine, how about you? What was your feeling of this book? Yeah, well, I just, uh, yes. So that's a great, that was a great um, summary. It was just so ironic, right? That here we are March 2020 meeting with the publisher to discuss a proposal. And she was asking us some reasonable questions like, you know, will those examples really hit teens? And we're like, well, we have no clue because we don't know where we're going. Will we be back in schools? Will these be the sorts of things teens continue to deal with? So we lived what we wrote really. Um, but it's turned out, you know, as we all know, in these after times, it's, you know, turned out to be a new, a new normal, but teens still grapple with many of the same things. Social media has, has really sort of changed the landscape, but the items on the landscape are still the items, even though the landscape looks a little different. So mm -hmm. I think these are good, good strategies, um, irrelevant of the, the, the change in landscape. I'm glad you even you said that, because I think that's so important. Um, parents often say, well, things have changed so much, or this is because of this, you know, their, their anxiety is because of this, or social media is causing these issues. And like you said, the issues have always been there. Um, the landscape of which we're experiencing them changes, but the actual dynamics and what's going on in our brain and what's going on in the adolescent brain and dealing with uncertainty. I mean, the pandemic definitely put us to the test, right? Adults too. What did you see the most with teenagers when it came to the uncertainty of the pandemic? How are kids coping with that? 
I, I mean, I, I, my sense from seeing my clients and even seeing I've got two teenage sons was initially, 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 you know, kind of shock and, and disappointment and just, you know, suddenly grappling with, you know, after the first few days and weeks of woohoo, no school to holy crow, no school. Like, what does this mean? I'm stuck at home with you guys or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then we get beyond that first period was really um, loss, um, especially the older teens, the teens in sort of grades 11, 12, that loss, the loss of the prom, the loss of the grad events. And then it wasn't just that loss. It was then the loss of my first year that I had envisioned post-secondary, whether it was me having a full-time job, suddenly jobs were changing and um, academics, obviously. So yeah, I mean, I think all of those those pieces were there for them. Um, and of course, what is at the heart of all of that? Uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. and I, I would add to Catherine, uh, the social connections were all was also a loss uh, in terms of being able to see people face to face. Teenagers is the time where you want to socialize. That's the most important thing for most of teenagers. And they weren't allowed to do that. And if they did, there were so many rules that they would be so mad at their parents or at the system for this happening in that time that is so short for them that they envision having this really great time going to parties or socializing outside of school that they were unable to do. And I found that many of them from being anxious, so having an anxious presentation when I first started seeing them, they started becoming depressed. So there was kind of this changing presentation. It wasn't just, oh, I'm worried about this, but I'm like, I'm really sad and there aren't many things to look forward to. And I just feel at a loss. So that was a really hard time for them that I feel that right now they are recovering from it. Uh, still, you know, a working in progress, but it's, it's much better than the first uh, two, first two years. And I think we also in this in the psychology community are figuring things out, you know, just reading the news and, and listening to kind of what's going on with, you know, in our field throughout those two years, we bounced around teens are really resilient, you know, they're going to pull through to, oh my gosh, we've got a massive mental health, um, you know, epidemic on our hands with teens, you know, that they're, they're depressed and they're anxious and and, and I kept reading, I'm like, well, which one is it? <laughs> like, are they resilient? And, and I'm looking in my own practice and, and I'm like, well, that doesn't quite match up. Um, you know, some are resilient, sure, but some aren't. And then some are really struggling and some aren't. So I think, you know, and, and I think we're still figuring it out. Now, you know, we're three years on or lost track, frankly, where we are, but yeah, we're three years on. And where are teens? I don't think we yet know. I think, you know, those ripples are still happening and we're still figuring it out. And I think the bottom line is probably it's going to be all of the above and none of the above um, because we are unique and there are many of us. I, I love that. And it's so important because there are kids that are just really struggling. And I think a lot of people thought once everything gets back to normal, everything will get back to normal. And we're realizing that everything didn't just flip back and kids were okay. I think a big problem, and I'm going to guess you guys agree with me, is because a lot of the problems already existed before the yep. pandemic. This just really brought it to light for bad and for good. Because now I think there's so much more awareness that we can give kids the help that they've been desperately needing for 
years and years and years, right? So how do parents help their kids that are really struggling with this sense of uncertainty? And we see this through tests, we see this socially, we see this with school, we see this just in general about life. How do we help them through those moments of just panic? That's an excellent question. And I think it goes back to our caveman era when we hated uncertainty because if things were uncertain, the chances of being alive and not eaten by an animal uh, were very low. So we never really liked uncertainty because of these need for us to survive. However, nowadays the uncertainty we face is not necessarily that we're gonna be eaten by animals, but rather that things don't go the way we expect and is more of a psychological uncertainty for many cases, of course, there are different situations and life circumstances, but we don't really like uncertainty. And I think some of the things that we talk about the book is to normalize that nobody really likes uncertainty to start off. And there is an evolutionary reason for it, but also in teenage years, this is one of the most uncertain times in a lifespan. Uh, you know, if you ask any adult, most of our lives are somewhat stable and certain, but if you ask a teenager, things can change from week to week. They can get new teachers, new classes, new friends, new relationships. Um, they can join new programs. They can do so many new things and things change like that. And I think that's really important for parents to acknowledge that this is a tough time. And when this is coming up and they notice that perhaps it's the uncertainty, uncertainty that is guiding the fear or the reaction that sometimes it doesn't even look like it comes from an anxiety place, but rather like a tantrum or like a fight, to take a step back and say, hey, this is really, really hard for you. And I get it. So I think the first step would be to be aware and then to validate what they've been going through. Um, I'll let Catherine um, also talk about her perspective on this and then I can continue. Yeah, and, and Juliana and I obviously having co-authored and, and doing a lot of the same work think very much alike. So absolutely everything she just said to then add on would be that this is what Juliana just references. We're not good at that as parents. And this is the, the irony. We're excellent problem solvers. Our infants come into this world and we are like rapid fire problem solvers. Dirty diaper, hungry, needing soothing. It's one of the above. Solve, solve, solve and do it fast. And then as our kids grow, we gather steam with that. You know, well, what's the tantrum about? It's quickly interpreted and solve the problem. Then we get to the teenage years and it changes and solving the problems aren't necessarily what our teens want anymore. They often want to be heard. And that's exactly what Juliana is talking about is listening to them, acknowledging the hurt, the frustration, the challenge, and normalizing that this is not unusual. There's nothing wrong with you or the situation. But once we've done that, it's actually not to jump in and solve the problem, but to let our teens sit with it, to sit with some of that discomfort and to grow that muscle. Because as we all know, there's plenty of uncertainty throughout adulthood. That's not going to change. So rescuing our kids from the discomfort that comes with uncertainty is actually not to their advantage. What is to their advantage is to be a partner with them and help them tolerate that discomfort and stand side by side with them. We don't have to abandon them to the discomfort and you know, literally leave the other room into the other room or tell them, you know, we'll get back to them in a couple of weeks. We can walk it with them. But what we do need to do is let them experience it. 
I think what's really difficult for parents is that discomfort is extremely discomforting for parents. And so us seeing our kids in discomfort just goes against every maternal and paternal instinct that we have, right? And then we are not comfortable sitting in our own discomfort either. And so we want to fix it. And so I see, you know, and I know in your practices too, this is something that I'm working with parents all the time, but to do it is, it's just so hard. And they end up just going in and and trying to fix anyways, or trying to even just say, oh, it's not so bad, or which undermines the experience that they're having, right? And kids then feel like, oh, mom and dad don't understand me. So how do you help parents be okay being seeing their kids not okay? I think there's evidence. We've got research to back this as a, as a tried and true strategy. So that's often where we go to is what does the science tell us? So that's an easy one in the beginning is just to let them know, look, we're not guinea pigging on your kids. Like there's actually a trail out there that lets us know that largely this is effective. Um, I think having supports is another good one, whether that's in the appointment with us um, or with a partner or extended family or a small group of friends that you can talk about this. Um, And then real, the real test is after the event, whether it's a small event or a big event where you're trying it out with your kiddo is to check in later on. How did that feel for you? How did that go? What was that like? And then to revise it. Um, One of the things we say to our, our, our adults, or our parent clients, sorry, um, is you can do this, but you also really have to make sure you've got a strong relationship. This does not work well if the relationship is weak. So making sure you are putting deposits into your relationship on a regular basis will sure up the ability for you in that moment to say to your child, I'm not going to do this for you. Whether that is calling the teacher and letting them know that you don't want to continue with the recreational activity or another kid's parent or whatever it might be, um, you need to have a strong relationship with your child in order for this to be effective. Yeah, and also to add to Catherine's, um, it's also important for parents to realize that the more we rescue our kids when they're in distress, the less they're going to learn that they can cope with it, right? So as a parent, as you're saying, mammals, we need to rescue our kids from the time that they are born, otherwise they won't survive. But when you're thinking about anxiety and you're thinking about uncertainty, rescuing and overprotecting them is actually not helping in the long run. In the moment, everybody feels better. Woof, you're not so stressed out. I'm not so stressed out. Let's keep going. But in the long run, what is the child, the team is going to learn? I cannot handle this if I don't get so much extra support, right? So also understanding that this piece of uh, having this instinct of always kind of rescuing them is important to take a step back and realize that actually it's a good thing for them to start experiencing things for themselves and becoming an independent individual. This is going to help them in the long run. Yeah. So, and, ju- yeah. and just yeah. to piggyback on that, what Dr. Negreros just said is that that's actually sometimes one of the small but important ingredients that parents need to hear is that when we rescue our kids, we're actually saying to them, oh, sweetie, I don't think you're capable. Let me step in. Whereas when we hold back, we're saying to them, I really think you can handle this. And when parents hear that, there's a bit of an aha moment of, ah, right. I didn't realize what my nonverbal communication was here. And when they know that, it gives them more impetus to be able to hold themselves back. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point too, is making sure you understand that what you're trying to do comes from the right place, but it's not being received in the way you mean it. And so a lot of these kids do receive our help or advice or anything else, not as help or advice, but as criticism and judgment, right? And it also takes away their opportunity to learn. So now we are setting them up to not succeed moving forward, right? I want to ask you, Catherine, you said one thing that I wanted to jump into was, um, you know, we need a strong relationship with our kids. And I'm, I'm guessing too, you guys see this, but I see parents who don't have that strong connection, but there's an emergency and they want to take care of that and fix that and change that without repairing the relationship first, because there's no time. Can you speak to that for a second? Because that, that's a little uh, conundrum that a lot of parents are facing. Yeah, so this is interesting because a, a, a passion of mine is um, social justice and anti-oppression work. And one of the things that I have, um, you know, really been learning about and trying to apply in my own life are some of the cultural characteristics um, that come really from sort of European white culture. And one of those is urgency. Um, and another of those is perfectionism. Um, and so those two kind of collide in those moments. And there is this urgency to hurry up and fix it and to fix it well. And I remind myself, and, and I always say to all of the parents I've ever worked with, my greatest learning curve was not the first 10 years or 15 of graduate training and work. It was having kids. Um, and so my oldest is 16, and I feel like I've been on a 16-year course <laughs> of learning, and I live and, and breathe this too. Um, and I sometimes, I mean, that sort of rescue, rescue, I'm, oh, holy cow, I'm holding myself back. And in fact, one of the, something happened this weekend in our household. And my husband, who's an amazing parent and partner is leaping in, let, let, let's do it. And I'm holding him back. I'm saying, we cannot rush. We need to slow down. I want to jump in too. So that urgency, often things are not nearly as critical as we make them out to be and slowing down it's true, slow and steady wins the race. So I don't know if I'm quite answering your question, Dr. Cam, but I, I would just say, be aware of the pressures that we have, the very subtle in our communities. And, and this is cross-culturally. This is not just for white European families. This is across the Western hemisphere or whatever. I mean, I think this is global. Um, so reminding ourselves that being in a hurry actually is more likely to be harmful than slowing it down a little bit and, and making some thoughtful decisions. Yeah. And also to add in terms of like kind of developing this connection or a strong, stronger connection with those relationships that are not there yet, doing things together that your teen enjoys doing and not for you like, oh, let's go for a walk. They don't like going for a walk. That's not going to be a good moment for a connection, right? What do they enjoy doing? Can you join them or can you learn a little bit more about it can you show some kind of interest can you bond can you praise them when you notice them doing something good that you appreciate can you be positive about it and catching them being good 
rather than like criticizing them for not doing the things that you are expecting them to do, like clean their room or put the dishes away. or So kind of switching this ratio of the negative comments and criticism to the positive ones. I find that the more you look at what you want to see, the more you're going to start seeing. Um, so taking a step back as well, when you notice like <laughs> they didn't do this, let's say, hey, thanks so much for folding the laundry. Do you mind putting that in the drawer too? That really helps me. So those kind of things, uh, I know that they sound really little, but just like feeling um, more positive uh, about yourself as a team is really important. And sometimes that's uh, what is getting in the way of the relationship because they feel like they are being criticized all the time. A lot. And going back to the research, um, in terms of secure attachment, looking at the attachment research, a secure attachment means meeting your kids' needs. And sometimes those needs are for us to butt out, to not be around. Um, you know, going into a child's room, a teen's room, and saying, oh, I want to hang out with you because you're thinking I want to build this strong relationship. That could be received as really invasive. Mom, I don't want to hang out with you. No offense. So learning to be small drops in the bucket to build that strong relationship. So exactly what Dr. Negreros just said in terms of making more positive comments. And, you know, those small little things. I thought of you at the grocery store. I know you wanted X for, you know, snacks. I picked it up. Um, sure, I can pick up so-and-so on the way home. Not a problem. You want that radio station on to a particular channel? You got it. Um, you want to sit in silence and be put your headbuds, what are earbuds in? And um, I hate that. I always tell my kids, I'm not a chauffeur. <laughs> it's not an Uber. But maybe they've had a really stressful day and it's a five minute ride. And you know what? I can suck it up. I can be a chauffeur for five minutes. So finding small ways to build the big, strong relationship rather than one big thing actually promotes a secure relationship, secure and strong attachment. I love that, Dr. Martinez. And I think uh, I think a lot of parents too struggle with the feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm doing too much. And my kids don't appreciate it and they're becoming entitled. And so now I'm withholding because I don't want them to be entitled versus how do we show them that love and appreciation, not because we need the thanks back, but because we want to make them feel secure. How do you draw that line? Parents struggle with that, I think. That's a, that's a very tough question. I don't know if there is an answer with, <laughs> with this is a specific question, but you're right. Um, a kind of how to draw the line, what to give versus not give. And, and I think that the bottom line is to be firm in certain, certain things that for you are important, certain values as a family that you have at the same time, being flexible and warm uh, to a certain extent and compromise, I guess that it comes to all right, you really want extra time on your phone today. And I see that, you know, you've been really stressed out, kind of negotiating a little bit more rather than saying, nope, this is it. And there is no way out uh, because then teens start kind of not wanting to hang out with you anymore. If you're just so firm in your boundaries, you don't see their perspectives and all. So it's really important to try to remember when you were a teenager, what was that like? What were you going through? Maybe you didn't have phones back then, but there were, you know, the real phones that you were like hanging there for like three hours with your friends while your parents say, hey, hang up. Yeah, I need the phone. <laughs> right? And, and I think once you put yourself in their shoes a little bit, you may create more of a, an understanding and somewhat flexibility for to relate and to understand and to get and perhaps to compromise 
in a way that feels good for you, but also feels good for them. And, and what we're really talking about here is communication, right? To have open communication, to be collaborative and to be flexible. Um, Dr. Kim, I'm sure you share some of the same um, celebrity crushes, as it were, in our research or researcher crushes, um, mental or psychological, of course. One of those people that we really um, deeply respect and uh, revere um, is uh, Whole Brain Child, Dan Siegel amazing book he's written lots of other books but one of the things he said and, and I remember this was earlier in my career is we can backtrack we often as parents believe that once we've set a precedent or said something that we have to stick to it and he said who says like says who right um who said that and that's a key piece right you've set a mandate and then your child comes to you, your team comes to you and says well I, I don't like that or that doesn't work for me and then you start thinking yeah I guess that kind of doesn't work it is okay to say all right yes that's true that's not going to fly and one of the great ways we can get ourselves out of that is to say to our team what do you think what would be the way out of this or not way out but what would be a, a potential solution to the situation we're talking about here and then negotiate so communication collaboration and when we're talking about anxiety the arch nemesis of anxiety is flexibility anxiety is as rigid as it gets so I often say to parents model flexibility because your child if they're anxious is struggling with that so show them how to be flexible through your interactions with them yeah I see it with anxiety too the fear of failure um, a lot of kids it's not just the, you know, unknowing, um, but it's fearing that you're not going to be able to deal with whatever comes your way, right? So the uncertainty is one thing, but they're really uncertain that they're going to be able to do it. And that's, that's right. where they're really anxious. So how do we, before we go, like, what are some tips that you can give parents to help them believe in themselves? Because just saying believe in yourself and you can do it certainly doesn't work, does it? So how do we help our kids feel more certain about their own ability? Yeah, and that's actually, I think, my favorite piece of the uh, entire framework that we use, which is based on cognitive behavior therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, uh, which is to take risks and see what happens. Because the only way your brain is going to learn that you can do it is by doing it. And sometimes the goal is too high, too anxiety provoking. So you really have to backtrack and do it gradually. So little, little successes say, hey, I know that, you know, you're kind of afraid of doing this presentation. How about uh, we practice just uh, with our family, then you can invite other friends. And then the, the team starts building this confidence that they can do it, even though it feels uncomfortable. So making sure that you understand that the goal here is not not to feel uncomfortable and be like, oh, I love presenting. That's not the point. The point is for your brain to learn that, you know, that was uncomfortable and I handle it and I achieve because this is to, uh, something that is important to me, something that matters to me. And so this is uh, part of what we call taking risks um, or smart risks in our book as well, uh, where parents are encouraging their child, their teen to face uh, their fears and uncertainties little by little. And a really uh, good phrase that I find that it comes from the SPACE program, which is this evidence-based program for parents um, uh, of kids who are anxious, is to say, I know this is hard for you, so you validate how they are feeling, and I know you can do it, yes. right? 
So just that saying, hey, I know it's hard and let's do it and see what happens would be one of the first steps for parents. And coupled with that is in um, a direction towards passions. So for for a, a greater reason, I'm not just doing it because mom said, I'm doing it because it gets me closer to my own passion, which is signing up for that class or hanging out with my friends on the weekend. Um, and our book, Getting Comfortable with Uncertainty for Teens, really is for teens, but it's also for parents. It's a great book for parents to pick up grab the lingo, and then apply it with their teens. And so in this case, it may be, first of all, asking your teen, what's important to you? What are your passions? What matters? And then when you know and they know, then go exactly what Dr. Negreras just said, which is to get brave, to face those fears in small increments. I love that. And that is a great place to stop. So how do they find you guys? If they want to find your book or find you, where do they do that? So uh, to find us, you can we can provide you with our websites. We have our private practices here in the Lower Mainland uh, of British Columbia, Canada. Um, and for the book, you can also go on Amazon or any other bookstore near uh, your house, and it's available. And published by New Harbinger, so you can get it yeah. off the New Harbinger website. Yeah, so it looks like this. It's a little yellow book. Yellow book with purple writing um, and a young female teen poking her head up <laughs> at the bottom, um, looking a little uncertain. Uncertain, right? <laughs> so what is for each of you? Can you give us one main takeaway that you want parents to have from, from our talk today? I would say mine, and, and I this is my own personal one in my household with my teenage sons, is it is okay to be uncomfortable. In fact, it's more than okay. That is going to be um, the gold. The gold that makes you the parent you always wanted to be is learning how to tolerate your own discomfort and promoting and celebrating it in your teenage children. Love that. Yeah. And um, sorry, and I, I stole it, yeah. Juliana. <laughs> in addition to that, I would encourage parents to also take a step back when they are feeling uncomfortable and kind of watching what's going on for them. Is this their parent instinct coming in, trying to problem solve? Is that something else that is reminding or triggering them based on their own experience? And how can they take a step back and not intervene right away, uh, but rather validate and ask for their opinion? Hey, uh, this is hard. I'm here for you do you want to talk about some solutions? And if they say no, that's fine. Yeah. You are there. That's what you want to say. I'm here for you, but I don't need to problem solve, but I'm here if you would like some extra help. So just asking their permission and saying that you are available whenever needed. I think that's a equal message. But it is about letting them be uncomfortable and dealing with your own discomfort by not fixing stuff and letting them stay uncomfortable, which is going to be hard for everyone. But that was, that's really, really great advice. Thank you guys very much for jumping on with me today. I really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. And thank you, parents, for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us. I really appreciate you, too. If you want to learn more about how to help your teens thrive, you can grab my top 10 secrets for raising teens at askdrcam.com slash parenting tips. Until next time, stay curious. And remember, there's always more to the story than what you see.